hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Applications are now open for Author Accelerator's 2022 Manuscript Incubator, where 16 writers will get seven months of one-on-one book coaching through a revision and the opportunity to present their revised manuscript to a panel of agents and publishers. To celebrate applications opening up and to give you an idea of how a book coach can help you with the revision process, Author Accelerator is hosting a free online workshop on July 8th called Ready, Set, Revise, How to Plan and Revise a Novel or Memoir. If you're ready to tackle a revision head on and you want some added support, head to authoraccelerator.com slash manuscript hyphen incubator to learn more about the incubator and to save your spot for this summer's free event. Hi, everyone. 
everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks segment. Today we have two fabulous authors joining us. The first one is Paige, who won this as a prize at our January The Shit No One Tells You About Writing virtual retreat. So this was one of the prizes. And for those of you who are considering the next virtual retreat, we have made an announcement. The second one will be run on the 24th and 25th of September. So it feels like it's ages away, but it's going to be upon us before we know it. And once again, we'll be offering some awesome prizes there as well. Right. So Paige, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's wonderful having you. Will you kick us off by reading your query letter? I'd love to. Dear Bianca, Cece, and Carly, I'm a huge fan of the shit no one tells you about writing podcast and learn so much from listening to it each week. Thank you for the opportunity to share my story with you and your loyal listeners. Florence Ever After is a memoir about love, identity, ambition, and the choices women make that define their lives. At 92,000 words, it is told with the passion and curiosity that made Hope Jaren's Lab Girl a bestseller and the coming-of-age feminism that people rooted for in Joanna Rakoff's My Salinger Year. Florence Ever After is like if Under the Tuscan Sun had taken place in a scientific lab. At 28 years old, I had a plan firmly in place when I applied for a one-year fellowship to research muscle contractile properties at the University of Florence, Italy. The prestigious postdoctoral fellowship would launch my academic career, and the man I was madly in love with would patiently wait for my return. But nothing went according to plan. On my first day at the University of Florence, I quickly learned that my work-to-live Americanism didn't jibe in a country and city that put pleasure firmly first. The tragic events of 9-11, one week after my arrival, touched off an isolated stretch of time when, not speaking the language and pegged as the brash American outsider, I struggled to form relationships with my Italian colleagues. After I discovered a fatal flaw in my research methods that threatened to derail my projects and all future job prospects, my boyfriend visits Florence only to tell me he's moved on. Heartbroken and with my career in jeopardy, I needed a new plan. But in order to salvage my research project, cultivate new friendships, and trust in an unexpected romance, I had to surrender to the Dolce Vita. I'm a professor of physiology at the University of Kansas School of Medicine, where I conduct research on the benefits of exercise and heat therapy on chronic diseases. I've published over 60 scientific articles and book chapters on my research, and have been nationally recognized for my work promoting women in medicine and science. I live in Kansas City with my husband, two overscheduled preteens, and a tennis ball-obsessed chocolate lab named Hazel. Thank you for your time in reading my first pages. Sincerely, Paige Geiger. Thank you, Paige, or should I say Prof Geiger. And please send kisses to your dog from all of us. Right, so Carly, will you kick us off and let us know what you thought of that query letter? For sure. Paige, you seem so nervous and we're like so glad to have you. So like take a deep breath. You know, you're, you're along for the ride. You're part of the crew now. So try to relax and sit back and enjoy yourself. So yeah, as we said, congratulations on winning the retreat prize. And we hope you come to the next one. We had such a blast and we're so excited for, for the next one in the fall. So join us in September. Okay, so for the query letter... Okay, I really liked the title, but it sounded so lovey-dovey and not enough lab-y, you know, science-y. It doesn't have to sound super academic, but it just didn't touch on that side of your, you know, of your book or your personality at all. So I read the title, you know, Ever After is also kind of like happily ever after, right? And so I just didn't, I just, I liked the idea of the title. And then the more I read your query letter, I was like, oh, I don't think this title fits this project. So I definitely think that needs to go. Like one of your comps is Lab Girl. That just seems like a book called Florence Ever After would not sit beside a book called Lab Girl. And we wanted to sit beside the book called Lab Girl, right? So, so yeah, so that's my thoughts on the title. Okay, and then, and then the middle paragraphs here. So, 
I really liked the the body paragraph. I think though the line nothing went according to plan sounds like a bit of a placeholder. So I would add a little bit more voiciness to that line because a lot of times with books or memoirs it's like, you know, somebody got into this situation but things were never the same or, you know, life never goes according to plan. It's obviously because there's a book, <laughs> you know, there has to be a story here. So what is it that didn't go to according to plan? It's just it is a common type of thing. So I just want your voiciness on that or just give us something to kind of elevate that line just to make it sound a little bit more unique. And so the next section was like on my first day at the university. So this is one, two, three, four, five lines. It was basically five lines of you saying I didn't fit in. So I would condense that, just shorten that, like, you know, figure out the one line way to say you didn't fit in. I think focusing on that 9-11 narrative, like 9-11 happened, you know, and then focusing on as an American, especially at that point, you didn't fit in. So I think just narrowing in on that hook for the reason you didn't fit in, will just shorten that five lines. I really like the next section, you know, after I discovered the fatal flaw all of that heartbroken career in jeopardy all of that's really 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 good definitely stronger the next part is but in order to salvage my research project cultivate new friendships and trust in an unexpected romance i had to surrender to the dolce vita so that just sounds less meaty and i think there's just such a balance here in this project between the science bit and the, and the personality bit and like you finding yourself in a foreign country versus you're talking about serious science here and so i think the whole the query is it's dancing between these things. So for me, that line, that last bit sounded to eat, pray, love to me personally for this project. I would just like that to sound a little bit meatier. And I don't, I haven't read the full manuscript. Obviously I've read the pages and I don't know what the book is to become. So I'm not trying to put words in your mouth or say that it has to be one way or the other. I'm just saying for what I imagine this project to be, I don't think that sounds meaty enough to keep the reader reading, right? That's kind of our goal is to get them, get them to the end. So I would finesse that line again as well. And I thought the the author bio paragraph is great. You know, you're focusing on your academic talents. And so that's why I think this, you might want to make that the author bio a little bit less sciencey, a little bit more authory. You know, at the end, you have that live in Kansas City, overscheduled preteens, chocolate lab. So it has a nice balance to it. But in terms of voiciness and memoir, I don't know if that sounds a little bit too like this is pulled from your your department website. You know, we just want to make it maybe a little bit more booky, I think. So, you know, nothing was wrong here with anything. It's more just how can we tweak this to make it stand out, focus on what's unique about it, highlight what we need to highlight and, and just dance between that balance of personality and science, which I think is a really interesting, interesting combination. And I don't think there are enough books, you know, about female scientists and, and women in the lab and things like that. My husband did his master's degree in genetic biology. So I know nothing about science, but a little bit about lab life from from hearing him talk about it. So I, I love that we're getting this, this female perspective. Just on that page, so when Carly was saying, you know, she wants a little bit more voiciness in terms of something like nothing went according to plan. So for Paige and for our listeners, you know, voiciness is keeping it in, in line with the themes of the novel and what we're exploring in the novel. So something more voicey would be all of my carefully calibrated calculations kept leading me to all the wrong answers. You know what I'm saying? So that's not the perfect line for you, but it's just these are the things we're looking for in terms of voiciness that reflect the theme of the novel, etc., etc. Right, so before we go to Paige, Cece, was there anything you wanted to add? Just that when I read this for the first time, I thought, oh my gosh, a pray love, but in STEM. And I thought that was really cool. And coming from me, that is a huge compliment because I find a pray love to be the most boring thing I've ever read. Couldn't even finish it. Sorry, I just thought it was boring. 
But this I thought was interesting. Amazing. Thanks, Cece. Well, let's hope if we ever get Elizabeth Gilbert on the show, she won't have heard this episode. Right. So <laughs> She will not care what I think. I promise. I promise she's too busy being fabulous. It's true. It's true. And making tons of money from, from that book. Okay. So, Paige, would you like to come back? Are there any questions you have for Carly? Any comments? So that's a, such an interesting challenge that you've set out there, Carly, in terms of balancing the science and the story elements. And it's definitely something that I, I really do feel like they are integrated in the story. I want them to be integrated in the story. So I think that's a, a challenge to figure out how to get that across in the query because there, there are meaty parts, but I also, there is a romance and there is a lot of, you know, sort of self-discovery and those aspects. So, you know, I've definitely written it. I hope like a novel. And so I want it to have that feel too. So yeah, but, but I, Bianca's point about that, about that line in the voiceness, that example really helps me see how to make that not so plain and give it a little more flair. But yeah, any other points that you can give me on how to, yeah, balancing those two seems, seems like a challenge in, in such a short little document. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I honestly think it's just going line by line, you know, does this line reflect everything I'm trying to do? Like we talk about how if this was to be real estate, you know, how important this is, this is everything, right? This is curb appeal. This is like your copy on your realtor website. Like this is everything like you are every line, every word has to do so much. Think of it like a poem, you know, like if you were writing a poem, how important does every single word need to be? Or if you're a a songwriter, you know, how, how much every word has to do so much work. So I would really just be taking this line by line. Like, does this line reflect everything that I'm trying to do? And a lot of it just comes back to knowing your book really well. And because this is a memoir, especially it's your story, right? Like, you know, your story. So I love Bianca's example about how can we add some sciencey language to nothing went according to plan. It's like figuring out how we can add that spin, you know, on everything. And just obviously going back to the retreat. Now that I know that you're at the retreat, Courtney mom did a great job of that at our retreat, I don't know if you remember, about just making sure every every single word, you know, how can we add that? I can't remember what, what she said, but it was like, how can we, you know, the difference between a $1 word and a $10 word, going back to that, right? And, and when do we have to use those $10 words and when to use our $1 words? So yeah, so I think that line is, is a great example of how we can do that. And so a lot of it's just playing around with it, you know, does this draft work? Does this line work? And just always coming back to brand, right? How are we staying on brand? What are the themes of this book? And it's, and you know how I hate themes and, and query letters but it's not about putting the themes in it. It's like, how does this world that I've created, what, what is the dictionary and the thesaurus for this world that I've created? And how can I pluck the words that I need from my own table of words to kind of, you know what I mean? To pluck that into this and make it feel like its own immersive experience, because those are the strongest queries, right? Where we feel like we are already in that world or, you know, we're, we're already moving into the pages knowing what this is about. And so I think with memoir, you have such a leg up on everybody, right? Because this is your story and you know it. That's great. That makes perfect sense. I have a question about the bio paragraph. So I debated whether to put in some of the writing, the fact that I've had a blog for 10 years or that, you know, attending various writing workshops or things like that. So is that what you mean by kind of shifting it away from the sciencey part or just more personal in general? 
I, I think this is another thing where I can't answer this for you, but I'll tell you how I feel about it. So, so okay, I'm going to go line by line here. So I'm a professor of physiology at the University of Kansas School of Medicine, great where I conduct research on the benefits of exercise and heat therapy on chronic diseases. So obviously that is accurate and that is true. Can you find like a layman's way of saying that potentially? And I, it's not because I want to water down what you do at all. I'm just saying, you know, can we just not make it sound like it's plucked from your, again, your department website or your, you know, your research work? How can we just, even if there's an example of something that, you know, people can wrap their heads around or if you have taken your science for example you know if there was a study and it got picked up by mainstream news you know what I mean just making that connection between science and have you written about it on half post do you know what I mean like trying to make those connections between the science writing yes you can write science papers you've written 60 scientific articles and book chapters amazing now you're writing a memoir which is an entire different you know different market different type of writing so I want you to show me through this author bio that you know how to do that you know how to adapt your writing style for the environment and the market that you're writing for. That's kind of what I'm getting at. That's great. That makes perfect sense. I guess I have a question sort of for both of you. So Cece, because she always talks about the plot points. Is there Are there enough plot points in that body paragraph for you? Yes. I just... My only concern is that last bit that I said, which was the line that I said needed to be meteor. In order to salvage my research project, cultivate new friendships, and trust in an unexpected romance, you know, I had to surrender to the Dolce Vita. So I think that's the part where you might be burying some things. But I think really leaning into the discovered a fatal flaw in my research messes that threatened to derail my project and all my future job prospects, like that is huge. At, at that time, you must have been like, my entire life is being blown up right now. So that's very, very dramatic. And obviously the the relationship kind of imploding, very big. So those are, to me, big enough. And that's why when you go from fatal flaw of my research methods, like my boyfriend dumps me, and then your last line is of that paragraph, but in order to salvage my research project, cultivate new friendships and trust in unexpected romance, I had to surrender to the Dolce Vita, which sounds, I don't know, I don't know exactly what the word is I'm looking for, maybe not weak, but passive and less important. <laughs> but I don't want to minimize an amazing love story. Like everybody loves an amazing love story. So I think it's, again, balancing that scientific work and the implosion. Because uh, you also talk about in the second paragraph about coming at age feminist story, right? And so I think you have to bring that back to what is feminist about this, unless you're bearing that later. And just like being a woman in a lab is a feminist act in itself sometimes. But I also think, you know, maybe we could figure that out a little bit more to make that a bit more clear about this why the stakes are important in that latter half of that paragraph. Why does it matter that you have to surrender to the Dolce Vita? What's the uh, what's the Florence part? What's the Italy part that is so important to the story? Cece, was there anything you wanted to add there? I agree with everything Carly said. And I'll, what I do when I'm thinking of a memoir is I play the pretend it's fiction game. And if it were fiction, because when you can't play around with what actually happened, you tend to figure out the things you have to flesh out in real life. If it were fiction, I would want to see a rivalry between you and a male colleague at the lab and you guys would fall in love or I don't know, something that would make you be both threatened and tempted in the same space, because that is how you create story forward tension by cornering your protagonist. That's you with something that has to do with the stakes of what's going to happen next, not about what happened to before. So Again, I know that that probably did not happen, but maybe something in that vein happened that you could pluck from your life. I don't know. Okay. Thank you. All fantastic suggestions. For our listeners, let's have a bit of a challenge here because I really think hive mind can be super, super helpful. Let's help Paige 
try and brainstorm ideas for her title. So if you're on Twitter or if you're on Instagram, please use the hashtag FlorenceEverAfter so that page can find your suggestions and then brainstorm some suggestions that you think might work better in terms of the title. Let's see what you guys can come up with and maybe we make this a regular feature on the podcast where we have everybody brainstorming titles for you. Alrighty, so Paige, could you now please give us a summary of what's in those opening pages? Sure. So we have a timestamp, September 2001, Florence, Italy, and the first night when I arrive and I'm in the hotel, my luggage is lost, there's a kind of an eerie storm brewing outside that has me just nervous and apprehensive about my first day. Uh, I go to make a phone call and the line is dead because of the storm, so I sort of stumble out into the rain to find a phone booth and lose the battle with the phone booth, not being able to read the Italian instructions on the phone. And and you see that I'm trying to call the boyfriend back home. And I'm, you know, frustrated with the phone and also feeling a sort of frustrated that I've already resorted to being homesick. And, and there's a handsome Italian at the front desk that winks that I find annoying. <laughs> and then The second chapter begins with me sitting on the steps of the Department of Physiology at the university. I've been there two hours waiting for someone to show up, so I'm already a little bit frustrated with starting the day. You meet the professor that I'm going to be working for, who is the one person in Italy that I've met before, and I sort of get a tour of of the department. Awesome, Paige. Thank you. Carly, let's hear what you thought of those opening pages. Absolutely. So this, I had so many feelings about this. Number one, I just want you to know, I didn't want this to end. I was like, I was very into it. So just like take a deep breath. You did a great job. Okay. So I see myself a lot in this because I moved to London, England to do my master's program in September 09. Obviously it's not 01, but like, I remember that feeling of moving to a foreign country, having, you know, my life in luggage, having a boyfriend back home that I left behind being like, we obviously we did the long distance. Like just so everybody knows I married him. He's, he's my husband now. But yeah, I had this boyfriend back home and uh, moved to a foreign country with luggage. Like, see, I really saw myself in this one for sure. I moved to London, England, so I spoke the language, so I didn't have that language barrier. But I can definitely empathize with you a lot here. So number one, though, we need to cut part of this paragraph. So this, again, this, as you know, this is the podcast. These are my feelings. So these are my feelings. I don't like that you said I hate beginnings because this is the beginning of your book. So this, to me, this is like the most ironic opening I've ever read. It's like... <laughs> Are you telling the reader that you hate beginnings, but they're opening your book? Or like, are they supposed to hate beginnings too? Are you supposed to like, are you trying to make a connection with them about hating beginnings, but this is the beginning of your book? So as I said, I found like a lot of irony in this. So I would cut half of this. I would start at, I stare out my hotel room window as thunder echoes. I know and I know what we're cutting is part of the lost luggage bit. So just take the lost luggage bit and plunk that down later. But just cut that first half because... As I said, it's all personal, but that just wasn't my favorite part. But right away, like we start with the storm. Great. You know, all of that is wonderful. There's tension. You can't get a hold of him because the, you know, the power is out. All of this, all of this stuff is great. And then you can't get into your building because, you know, they're running on Italian time and they're just showing up whenever they show up probably. And you're like, hello, <laughs> academics are always in their office. What is it with these Italians? I can imagine what you're feeling about sitting on the steps, like wanting to get going here. So, so really, I just wanted to keep reading your writing. I also really liked the bit about how Rolando couldn't say your name he called you like Pagina or something I was like that is so freaking funny that just made me laugh so I really felt like you're accomplishing a lot in these opening pages 
you know, just like your fish out of water bit, all of that is, is really great. I also like that you you have the timestamp, September 01, Florence, Italy, but you don't say, you know, this is the September of all Septembers, right? Like, obviously, you're probably going to get into that. So I love the timestamp being really subtle, because people are going to go back and be like, wait, is this like that September, you know, and I just I love that you didn't dwell on that. It was very subtle integration. But yeah, no, I think you're I think you're doing really, really good work here. I think, you know, everything is was really strong that I read. I just I would just cut the first half of that opening paragraph. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, Paige. Thank you. I uh, appreciate that feedback. It's fantastic. I will definitely, I hadn't thought about that opening line in that way. So I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the feedback. Do you have any other questions, Paige, from Carly or Cece? While you have them here, you have two more minutes. Okay, so I very carefully have revised this beginning so that the storm isn't too big of a part because the whole weather, starting with the weather thing and starting with the character alone and, you know, that sort of. So does it flow enough quickly enough for you in that sense? Like you didn't feel like, oh, no, here's that weather paragraph again. No, no, there's a couple of reasons why. Number one, it's memoir. So it happened. And I know that it happened. So I know that you're not manipulating me like I could imagine a novelist might want to. So as long as this happened, it's your memoir. I think that's perfectly fine. The second thing is, yes, because you get to the within the five pages, we're already on the step of the office building or the you know the academic wing that you're in. So it moves quickly enough for me. So I would say you check all the boxes there. Uh, any other questions, Paige? No, thank you both for your time. All three of you, thank you. Yeah, Paige, you did Absolutely. a really great job. So make sure that I, I see the whole thing when it's done because I think you did you did a really great job. Thank you, I appreciate it. Paige, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Yeah. All right, so that was Paige, and now we move on to Rianne, who submitted her query through the Books with Hooks link. It is now on our newly formed podcast webpage. That is theshitaboutwriting.com. It's now got multiple pages that are dedicated just to the podcast, so you can traverse that quite easily. And there's one page just for Books with Hooks where you can go and submit your work. Right, Rianne, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Dear Cecilia, I'm a big fan of the podcast. Listening has really helped me refine this query letter, and I appreciate the opportunity to submit my materials for your feedback. Based on your MSWL, I think the neuroscience-based magic, eerie elements, and flawed protagonist of Neurowitch might interest you. Neurowitch is a 95,000-word adult science fantasy novel set in a future monarchical United States where scientific research has exploited witches' magic for military gain. Neurowitch's diverse cast, including a bisexual protagonist, neuroscience-based magic system, and heist elements will appeal to fans of the Feverwake duology and the Founders trilogy series. If Ava's royal classmates at MIT knew she was a witch, she would be dead within the day. She can't trust anyone outside her coven, even if that means keeping secrets from her partner. Her coven elders only make life more difficult when they suddenly decide she is the chosen one out of some dusty old prophecies. She doesn't have time for ridiculous theories. She has exams to pass and a future to chase. That is, until the royals destroy her coven and Ava must win over a pacifist coven to stay hidden and find out who killed her people. These new elders accept her on one condition. She must not involve them in her old coven's dangerous schemes. However, she soon manifests necromancy, a forbidden magic out of the prophecies she has so desperately tried to ignore. Ava hides her abilities. She can't risk expulsion while she is hunting for the royal who destroyed her life. Yet power can't stay hidden forever. And as Ava gets deeper into investigating the attack, the answers she uncovers about who ordered the hit make less and less sense. All paths, including the attack, lead to her. And if Ava is to face 
face her own culpability and save her people, she will need to confront the power she has tried to ignore to fulfill her destiny. I have a PhD in neuroscience and have published scientific manuscripts, but this is my first venture into fiction. When I am not in the lab, I hide from the upstate New York weather and write or paint in the company of my spouse and little black cat Luna. Thank you for your time and consideration. Rianne. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay, Cece, tell us what you thought of that. First things first, thank you for being here. We so appreciate it. I have to say that this is such a cool hook. A world where scientific research has exploited witches' magic for military gain. I read that and I was like, oh my gosh, yes, like give me more. This is so exciting. Great hook. A great hook is so important, right? Because it does it does make us lean in and be like, ooh, tell me more. So so absolutely excellent. I also want to say that I really love that you're tapping into your background to weave the story. So that's very exciting. And I know I, I love all things human brain. So I this is right up my alley. I, I really, really like this. In terms of your query letter, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I like that you established the stakes right from the beginning, meaning, you know, she would be dead if everyone knew, if her, if her classmates knew that she was a witch. I do think that you might benefit from personifying concretely the antagonistic force and also whoever she's trying to avenge slash protect. You'll understand why I'm saying protect in a second. Right now you have royals and coven and our listeners can't see me doing air quotes. So I don't know why I'm doing that. But it makes it hard for me to connect when royals are chasing her. Do you know what I'm saying? And there's a part where you say hunting the royal who's destroyed her life. And I, I thought to myself, well, okay, so destroyed her life because she lost her coven right? That's, that's fair. I'm not saying that's not a big deal. It, it is, but her future still seems secure. I think it might be helpful to specify, for example, the person that she lost in the old coven so that we know they're trying to either avenge their death, which I think is what you're doing now, or I don't know if this is at all possible, but it's an idea I had, save them. So again, to make this, because it does seem a little like everyone died in the old coven and then she's trying to hunt the person. It's not that I don't like the idea of someone avenging another person's death, but if the old coven were trapped waiting for like the scientific research process and she had a chance to save them, I don't know. I feel like that would make it so much more in keeping with with what I thought was going to be what was what was going to happen. But then I don't know if that even makes sense. But either way, it works. Just I want to know who is she looking to avenge or save and who is specifically after her? Because even the royals reference, it's... It's not as specific as I would hope, and then it becomes shapeless. And so it's hard to feel threatened when, when something isn't named and spe- specified in that way, if that makes sense. And yeah, I think those are my notes. Oh, I love the black cat, Luna. Just want to say that, you know, I love that you have a black cat. Wonderful, Cece. Oh. Thank you. Right, now we'll go to the end. Okay, so I do kind of have, I guess I'm trying to think how to phrase the question, but so essentially like it's kind of a mystery who specifically like she finds out pretty early that it was tied to, it had to be someone from Boston, probably from on campus, but part of it's she's unraveling who did it. I could make it more specific, like her father also gets killed in the attack because the attacks tend to spread to family members of Coven, so I can specify more specifically like she literally (laughs) lost everyone. And I guess something that I didn't work into the letter that I should because I was trying to save words is there's more covens that are starting to get destroyed so it's kind of clear that the rising stakes is that it's not just going to be hers like she needs to figure it out or even more people will be harmed so I guess if you have any thoughts on how to maybe (laughs) work with that okay 
it's excellent that you're telling me this. So I do want to clarify. I understand that the whole coven died, but who mattered to her? Not suggesting that she doesn't actually care about the whole coven because I know she's a nice person, but someone matters more. You know, someone murders my whole coven. There's one person I care about more or two people I care about more. It's just, it's just human nature. So you can keep the whole coven thing. Just, you know, her thing is always going to be more personal. And then I don't want you to tell me who did it because I understand that's a mystery. But I need there to be an antagonistic force that is clearly personified. In my opinion, this is non-negotiable in storytelling. It is just my opinion. I know people who disagree. Good people. So, for example, she doesn't know who did it, but there's someone after her. His name is Troy. Maybe it's not Troy. I don't know. Troy seems like someone who wouldn't put in the effort to chase her. Troy's in the pages, listeners. His name is whoever, right? Like someone's chasing her. So she, before he catches her, she has to catch someone else. So I want that very clear personification of an antagonistic force because that's super, super important. And then I really like what you said about the rising stakes, about the other covens. And so I wonder almost if that might put her in a, like paint her on a corner and make her feel like she either has to focus on being a student and, you know, continuing her, her secret life, or she has to step into her power and, and stop this nonsense. So I, I kind of like that. I kind of really like the rising stakes and I think that's really interesting. Okay, wonderful. Thanks, Cece. Right, Rianne, will you give us a bit of a summary of what's in those opening pages before we move to Cece's critique of them? Sure. So in the pages, we are introduced to Ava, who is sitting fuming in class. She is upset about the way her professor is describing witches, as though they were lab rats, less than human. From the professor's lecture, we learn that witches naturally detect magic through their unique neural networks and that artificial implants are used in other humans to enable magic use. As a witch, Ava finds it hard to sit through the lecture, but she can't let on about her frustrations as she must keep her true identity a secret. When she answers a question in class, one of the royal students makes a snide comment to his guard about Ava being a commoner. After class, Ava makes her way across campus past military guards using telekinesis. At the gate leaving campus, the guard on duty deliberately takes a long time to scan her ID once she sees that Ava is a scholarship student. After class, Ava goes to work at a coffee shop. At work, the same obnoxious classmate comes by and gives her a hard time, mocking her again for being a scholarship student. We see that Ava is angry but remains professional despite his jabs. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, Cece? I wanted to say that these pages are really well written and I can tell that you, that you, I mean, either you're naturally talented or you put in a lot of work because I'm always in scene. The mix between dialogue and narrative is super strong. I'm getting enough description that I know what's going on, but not too much that the pace is, is dragging. Like it's just, it's just very well balanced. And I always appreciate reading a scene like this or scenes because there's more than one. My big picture note is she is prey hiding in plain sight. This has been established in the query letter and also in her inner life when we meet her. She's not afraid at all. All I get is annoyance. So for example, she's really annoyed when when he scans her her card, the, the, the guard. I'm trying to find the the reference. Ava watched the soldier as her eyes scanned the screen. The soldier's eyes narrowed. She straightened and began scrutinizing Ava. Her eyes flashed back and forth between Ava's face and the screen. And I thought to myself, oh my God, she's going to be afraid of, of being caught, right? Because if you're prey hiding in plain sight, you must be terrified all the time. But no, all we got was Ava bit down her bottom lip to keep the mounting frustration off her face. And it was the same thing in the coffee shop. When they showed up at the coffee shop to taunt her, because they're bad people, she was annoyed. And in class, she was annoyed. I, it's not that I don't appreciate annoyance, because I, I very much get it. I just thought that she would be 
experiencing a bit more active emotions. I think that's my that's my big picture note here. I have a few line comments that you'll be able to see when you get my pages. I'm just not going to spend time on those unless, unless you want me to tell you. But she seems annoyed and exhausted, right? Like it was going to be a long night between work, training, and her quantum properties. At least after class tomorrow, she could catch up on some sleep. So again, she seems annoyed and exhausted. And I think this is intentional, but I wanted her to be feeling active emotions because I think that would make me feel more curious. So just to wrap up, like two things. One, I really wanted a disruption because her day is just going about it like in a normal pace, not, not too many interesting disruptions. And two, I really wanted her to feel active emotions. If you're curious, I had an idea of what that disruption could be, but I don't want to be the annoying person who just starts brainstorming without permission. So actually there's like a disruption basically in like page six. So this is where five versus 10 pages <laughs> is kind of unfortunate in the case of what I have written. So I guess in reference to the annoyance, like she's lived her whole life kind of in hiding. So it's the danger levels kind of normalized in her mind, but there is a disruption that kind of, you know, elevates things within chapter one. So it's just a uh, doesn't happen in the first five but i guess like is that like should i do something to try and make that happen a little sooner can you give us an indication of what that is exactly oh so ava actually uses her magic to spill troy's coffee on him after she delivers it to the table and we get like explained that magic isn't detectable this is why like the royals have had a hard time actually tracking down witches so she can like pull these tiny pranks that go under the radar and then after her partner comes into the shop Troy basically threatens to try and get her in trouble with the dean and get her expelled over nothing, saying that she's doing a bad job or whatever. Yeah. Okay, so Cece, what do you think? This is tough because tension is is a dance between withholding and revealing, right? And you can't, there's no formula to when things should happen. I wish there were. I've tried to crack it. There isn't. Different books do different things. And if it works, it works. But I think that especially in today's world, where our attention spans are you know, similar to that of moths, yes, sooner is better. And so I would just try to make sure that something unexpected doesn't have to be bombastic. It can be small. It can be very, very small. It doesn't have to be the, the inciting incident or anything like that. Something unexpected is happening right from the very first page, essentially, maybe second. Does, like I said, does not have to be big, but otherwise she's coasting. And I am not curious about what's going to happen next, unfortunately. And I have to be. I have to be. I can't be reading a snapshot of her life without any pressure being applied to her. And the pressure can be the smallest thing. Nothing that's going to get, make her get caught or anything, right? But it does have to be something so I can feel for her and root for her. So it's just an opinion, but that's all we can offer here at the podcast. But I would move it up. I would move the disruption up or add another one. Because sometimes the one-two punch disruption effect is also great, right? Like having two disruptions, as long as they make sense in the chain of events, can also be great. Lots of books do it. Brianne, do you have other questions or, or other comments? I guess like for adding another disruption, maybe I could have Kirstian not work at the gate. And so then she gets a, a bit more stressed leaving. And the only other question I have is if you think it works okay to have her in class and then the coffee shop, because I did have a version where it's the coffee shop and she's just reflecting on class while she's in coffee shop. But multiple beta readers found that kind of disjointed. But I just worried about like having so much before work for her. I definitely think that class and then coffee shop is stronger than being in the coffee shop thinking about class because I wouldn't want that. I still wanted something else to happen in class. You know, I wanted her to be giving a presentation and something doesn't work and she can either use magic or, 
or fail or this project not fail the whole class or anything you know like or or you know she's giving a presentation and it's with a partner and the partner is one of the annoying royal people who's like lazy and horrible and she has to deal i i just wanted something more active because i wanted her to be feeling cornered i want her to be feeling pressure yeah i think the key here is not just disruption for the sake of disruption you know it's we want disruptions that reveal character we want disruptions that make us sympathetic towards the character and then up the stakes you know these are the kinds of disruptions that we're talking about so they need to have you know quite serious consequences as opposed to just a disruption but if the disruption didn't happen, it doesn't actually matter in terms of the plot or in terms of the story. Does that make sense, Rianne? Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you so much for that feedback. It's very helpful. So like for my story, the inciting incident comes at, I think, page 30 or 40. Is that too long? But it's I've tried to trim out events prior and everything leading up is necessary for like the narrative purpose. So I guess I've kind of wanted agents' opinions because it seems like a lot of people push for like, inciting incident right away. But yeah, that would, I guess that's my kind of more general question. It's tough and it depends on so many things. But I always say curiosity needs to happen right away. If you can make me feel curious without the inciting incident, that's fine. But typically, the inciting incident is a thing that makes people really curious. So I don't know. I think I would try to get it a little sooner, but not if it gets in the way of your story, right? I don't, I don't think that you should compromise your story's arc to fit an artificial rule. I do think that, you know, sometimes it's possible to to rearrange things to make things happen quicker. But again, the main, main goal is making me feel curious from page one. All right, that's it for today's Books with Hooks. It was so lovely to have Paige and Rianne join us on the show. We hope that you will submit your work to the show so that we can get to discuss it. Right, let's go to today's guest. Hi, everyone. It's Cece. Question. What do all great stories have in common? They make us feel, which is why the ability to weave emotion into a story is so important. With that in mind, I'm teaching a class called Writing Emotion, Weaving Emotion into Your Story on June 2nd. Join me to learn about active emotions versus passive emotions, when to show and when to tell regarding emotionality, the most common mistakes and challenges in writing emotions, and how to turn them into successes. We'll cover techniques on how to effectively convey emotion in a way that keeps the reader turning the pages of a story with lots of examples from some amazing books. And of course, we'll have time for a Q&A session. Writers of all genres are invited to attend as knowing how to weave in emotion is a superpower useful for all storytellers. For information on how to register, please head over to my Instagram or Twitter page, click on the link in my bio and follow the instructions. And don't worry, if you're busy on June 2nd, the class will be recorded and a recording will be sent to everyone who is registered 24 hours later. I hope to see you there. And then you've all been asking me for another writing group matchup or a beta reader matchup. And so I've decided to do the great beta reader matchup. Go to my website, biancamaray.com, look under the beta reader tab to get more information about how to sign up for that.
we just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. 
Today's guest has sold more than a million copies of her novels, quickly becoming a commercial fiction superstar. Her adult debut, Beach Read, was the summer novel of 2020, an instant New York Times bestseller that remained on the list for 12 weeks and established her as a breakout voice in the romance genre. Her most recent rom-com, People We Meet on Vacation, was another immediate success, debuting as a number one New York Times bestseller and recent recently clocking its 31st week and counting on the list. Her novels have been featured in Entertainment Weekly, Real Simple, Cosmopolitan, The Skim, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Marie Claire, Oprah Daily, Good Housekeeping, Pop Sugar, Bustle, Shondaland and more. Not only are her books beloved by readers and media, but she herself has become a go-to expert on beach reads, writing book recommendations for the New York Times and Parade and sharing her picks on Good Morning America. She studied creative writing at Hope College and now spends most of her time in Cincinnati, Ohio and the part of Kentucky just beneath it. It's my pleasure to welcome Emily Henry. Emily, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me back, Bianca. That is quite an introduction and (laughs) I was not prepared to cut it down because that kind of achievement needs to be celebrated and we need to shout that from the rooftops. So we loved chatting with you for people we meet on vacation and we've been so looking forward to the release of Book Lovers. Now for our listeners, Book Lovers stars a by-the-book literary agent and a prickly book editor who unexpectedly fall in love in the small town of both of their nightmares, Sunshine Falls, North Carolina. This is a rivals to lovers romance but instead of doing the opposites attract trope, Emily, you've gone for a kindred spirits twist that we don't often see. Could you talk a bit about that. Yeah, I'm I love that you picked up on that because that really was, you know, from the very beginning I knew I wanted to do something that felt super different from people we made on vacation where Alex and Poppy are like total opposites. And I feel like when you write that and when you read that, there's like an innate tension there. You understand like what's funny about that dynamic and what's hard about it. And I honestly just sort of as a challenge to myself, wanted to write two people who were very, very similar and see if I could still make that interesting and fun and tense. And so that was, you know, before I really knew anything about Charlie or Nora, I knew like that's the dynamic I want. And so once I got to know Nora, it was like so much easier to write Charlie because I knew he needed to be kind of the other side of the coin for her. I love that you've said that because once you've got it firmly in your mind who the one character is, it helps with the character development for the other. So in terms of your process, how long do you need to write for before you got a handle on Nora? Is it something you thought about beforehand, got a handle, started writing, or how does that process work for you? I definitely had a basic handle on Nora from before I started writing. Like before I start writing a book, I do like to know, I mean, I know the premise, which in kind of gradually creates in my mind like about three scenes where I'm like, this premise is setting up these three funny scenes or these three you know, a romantic scene and a funny scene and, you know, fight, whatever. So knowing who Nora was, I kind of had those scenes in my head and a couple of jokes I knew I wanted to work in. And then when I started writing, all the details kind of got fleshed out. 
but I really did know kind of her core issue from the beginning and wrote this whole draft trying to kind of find Charlie and knowing he was going to be very similar to her. But as far as his backstory, all of that, like it really, it took me a while. Like I probably had written a full first draft before I started to feel like I had a a firm grip on him. And then my editor had all the right questions to take that deeper and to really understand like why he is the way he is. Whereas with Nora, it's like, I knew why she's that way. With Charlie, I needed like a different backstory that wouldn't feel like more of the same, but would still kind of result in the same sort of person. Yeah. And understanding why a character is the way they are is so important. I mean, you nailed her in terms of her misbelief. You know, Lisa Cron talks about knowing your character's misbelief, understanding what it is they think will make them happy, and then building everything up so that they discover pretty much that the opposite is true. So, you know, in terms of Hallmark movies, you've spoken about how we always see the guy go for the lovely woman who lives in his hometown and is not the high career woman who normally gets dumped in these kinds of movies. So can you talk a bit about why you wanted to turn that on its head? Well, I was watching a lot of those movies, which I also love. And, you know, I am not a proponent of taking one story's, you know, character's arc and saying like, this is making a statement that everyone needs to have this same thing. But when you see that same basic arc over and over and over again, you do start to think like, what does this world think about career women? And what does it think about women who love the city or like love high heels? Why is that so bad? And so that really, you know, that was how I found Nora and how I started to write that character. Like I just wanted to explore that. And I think we obviously love that character. She pops up over and over again, even if she's not the main character, like we're fascinated by her, but it's interesting because I hadn't really seen or read anything that I felt like explained why she is the way she is. And I really was like, you know, people don't, (laughs) people aren't formed in a vacuum. There's like a reason for everything. And that's the same with characters. Like you have to, to really know your characters. I believe you need to understand some basic facts about their childhood and, you know, what formed them. And so when I was thinking about what would make someone really ambitious and also sort of cutthroat and, and kind of like, you know what, I I just need to get the job done. What, what makes a woman that way immediately? I was like, okay, well, clearly she has a scarcity mentality. Like she had to have something in her childhood that made her long for the stability of, you know, uh, high paying, high powered job. And, you know, everything kind of built out from there, just taking like, what would what would her childhood have been to make her who she is now? Because like I said, we're fascinated by this character. She's everywhere. You know, we love the Devil Wears Prada. And it's like, the main character of that doesn't even really quite feel like the main character to me, because Miranda Priestly is so big and so interesting. And, you know, we get a little peek of her vulnerabilities and all of that, but we don't really understand what got her there to begin with. And that was what was so exciting to me about this book from the beginning was taking this character and like reverse engineering her. But also you stayed so true to her because something I struggle with is we'll see in a novel, a woman who at the outset decides, for example, she does not want to have children yeah, and she doesn't need children to be happy and she structures her life around it. And you get on board with this woman. Yeah. And then by the end of the novel, she decides, oh, actually, she did need yeah. children. She just along. needed then, the right partner. Yeah. Right. And then I pound my head against the wall because I'm like, no. Yeah. Whereas, you know, you've allowed Nora 
to be herself. And she does get a character arc. Of course she does. And I don't want to give anything away to our listeners. We get that character arc, but she stays essentially true to who she is, which, you know, is not something we often see in terms of those character arcs because we see writers turning back on that and flipping it on its head. And it's frustrating. Yeah, it's like, it kind of feels like, oh, see, we fixed her. Like she was the wrong kind of woman and now she's the right kind of woman because she found love and whatever. And and like I said, it's like, I love so much of this media that we're talking about. It's just that like when you never see the other side of it, you start to think like, this is what our society thinks is right. Because, you know, there are people who think their whole lives they don't want to have kids and then they're like, you know what, I do want to have kids. But there are also lots of people who think their whole lives they don't want to have kids and they're right. They never want to have kids. And it wouldn't feel like so frustrating if we weren't just seeing that one story kind of over and over again and not leaving room for the fact that some women just know themselves and know what they want and it is not that. Yeah, it's lovely to see women who know their own minds, not so stubborn that they can't change, you know, and accommodate other people, but know very much who they are. And especially to see it in like rom-coms, you know, because I feel like rom-coms have become so feminist. You know, I remember as a teenager, I grew up reading like Sweet Valley High and Sweet Dreams. You probably won't know these, Emily, because you're much younger than me. I know Sweet Valley High, yeah. Yeah, but these were the things that, you know, we grew up reading. That's all we had. There wasn't why. A really yeah. for me when I was younger and so I found a lot of it frustrating because it felt sort of anti-feminist it was giving kind of a, the different message than what I needed at that time right and nowadays we're seeing these rom-coms and stuff where you know it's we're dealing with bigger themes it's women in the workplace it's women you know forging their own paths etc knowing their own minds and it's I think it's incredibly important like what's what's your take on that yeah I think that it's so interesting because romance yeah, I mean, it's, I feel like it's the perfect vessel now for like for feminism. And what I mean by that is just that so much of modern romance is about, you know, it can be people of any gender, but I, I'll i just say like women's pleasure. A lot of it is about women's pleasure and women's um, autonomy over themselves. And it, yeah, I, I love that that's where it's grown toward because I actually was not a big romance reader growing up. And did discover it like in my adult life and was like, wow, this is like such a breath of fresh air to to have these books that are often women centered and about relationships. And it's not I don't know, like it's not being treated as superfluous or something like I feel like romance has been looked down on for so long because people think that's silly it's just a book about love and it, to me it's like that's weird love for most of us maybe not for most of us but for many of us love of whatever kind is like the most important thing in our lives and so the idea of a book being about that I don't understand what's what's silly or superfluous about that like love is probably the thing that I couldn't live without you know next to like food and shelter but I I love what so many people are doing in that space now where they're taking it like a step further and they're just really creating space for women's stories of identity and growth and healing and I yeah I just I'm such a huge fan of the genre and I feel like anyone who's not reading it should should start or anyone who hasn't read it since like the 90s should pick up a modern romance because like you said it has changed so much and it's it's not, I don't know, it's, it's just so complex. Like, 
there's so much great stuff happening in this space. And there's so many amazing writers who are choosing to write in this space. And I don't know if people outside of romance readership really know that. Like once you pick up a really well-written romance novel, you're just like, oh, (laughs) what have I been missing out on my entire life by like these assumptions I've made or these messages I've received that were ultimately just sort of like misogynist messages? 100%. And, you know, for our listeners, every now and again, we'll go on the podcast and we'll see our reviews. You know, we love seeing what our, our listeners think. And every now and again, there'll be someone who's like, oh, my God, I loved this show until you brought politics into it. Yeah. What has politics got to do with writing? Can't you Everything. just talk about writing? <laughs> and every time it pisses me off because writing is one of the most political acts there is. Like we sit down to write and our worldview gets put on the page and we feel rage about shit that's happening in the world and that becomes part of our you know of the themes that we're exploring etc etc and you know you're talking about female autonomy and we're talking about misogyny and feminism we seeing this playing out in the world today in the headlines and so you know for anyone who thinks that politics or that kind of thing has got nothing to do with writing you do not understand writing and you know maybe you don't agree with our politics on this show but that's fine but don't say that politics has got nothing to do with writing I mean I think politics like politics is just a fancy word for like sort of a nebulous thing that is integral to being a human I don't I don't really understand that logic. I think it's coming from a an old, like, I don't know, a, a mentality that I just don't connect with, where I'm like, existence is innately political. Po- politics is just a name for something that would be there whether we named it or not. 100%. 100%. Right. So we've said before when we chatted that, you know, not many editors want books about authors and publishing because we have agents on the show who say that it's a hard sell, but it's something that you keep... <laughs> Not only doing, but being hugely successful, you know, at. So what is it about the industry that keeps attracting you to write about it? Well, I think my familiarity is a big part of it. I I love knowing that I can get it right. I love knowing that, you know, my research isn't going to fail me. It's just something I'm super familiar with. But it's also like just such a weird industry because it really is this intersection of like art and commerce that's so messy and sticky and tricky. And yeah, I mean, I'm just I'm endlessly fascinated by it. And I started out as a reader and I think most writers started out as readers. And like, I don't know, I just I I remember hearing that like when we were trying to sell beach read like a lot of people were like this might be too like inside baseball for the average reader but I think we've seen now that that's not the case like people who love books do want to peek behind the curtain they do want to understand how it gets made because it's like you know it shows up on your doorstep and it's like this finished little package where whatever that that meme that went viral I don't know who said it so I feel bad but that that quote that was like it's so weird that reading is just like staring at thinly sliced pieces of a tree and like hallucinating, but it's like, it's so magic. It feels so magic. You're like, this is weird. Who invented this? But then to kind of like walk it back and think it's so weird that we end up at that point, but it goes through all of these stages before that. And I, yeah, I mean, I just feel like readers are innately curious so of course they're curious about books about the world of books how that how the meat gets made and I think you know like I wasn't the first person to do that to write a book about books 
And I definitely was not the last, like a lot of people are doing that now. And I think readers want more. I, I don't know. Like, I think we, I think we were a little bit wrong there. I think readers do want that. Maybe editors don't want to work on it because it's like fatiguing to them to be like doing their job inside of their job. But I think readers are, are very much there for that. Yeah, and you certainly are helping in creating a market for that for those who want to explore that. Something I want to focus on for the rest of our chat is dialogue and witty banter because you are the queen of this Emily like I read your your dialogue and the witty banter and the you know the back and forth and I'm like is Emily like the funniest person alive <laughs> like I would love to be at a dinner party with her because man the, the the banter must be amazing and then you remember that you know we're seeing the end result we're yeah. not seeing a work in in progress so in terms of our listeners dialogue is one of the hardest things to nail it's so difficult to make it sound natural and interesting and engaging so you know how do you approach that and especially the the witty banter do you have a process for it what's your advice well okay so first of all (laughs) I I will say that I think dialogue is the thing that comes most naturally for me everything else I feel like is a lot more work dialogue I feel like I can do it's just like how do I now make this conversation into a story so I do think you know I watch a lot of tv and I think that helps but I think as a writer If you do struggle with dialogue, first of all, I think you need to read it aloud. You have to read it aloud and think of it like as a script almost. And like, you know, how would these actors be delivering these lines? Is it easy enough to to hear that with just the words when you don't have the actor delivering the lines? Is, Is the actual wording enough to get, you know, the tone across and all of that? Does the sentence feel unnaturally long? Or does it feel like long in like a fun, playful way where you can imagine the the speaker saying it? So I think reading your dialogue aloud is huge. I don't think I actually read it aloud, but I know I kind of like mouth things and like <laughs> emote with my face as I'm as I'm writing. And I, I will sometimes in later drafts be looking at a joke that I wrote, be like, this is too long, or it's too it's too specific for the general readership to know what the joke is and you know, that kind of thing. So watching a lot of TV is helpful. TV you think is funny and then reading aloud. But also I think, you know, when I've tried over and over again to sort of codify this in my head so that I can give helpful advice, hopefully, I've realized that the thing that really will bore me in dialogue is when it just feels like two characters are naturally passing the baton back and forth and being like, I say this. So then you like, of course you say this because I asked, how was your day? So you're going to answer how your day was. I feel like if you want to spice up your dialogue a little bit more, you need to remember that that's not really how good conversations go. Like that is how casual, you know, work conversations might go. But I think of of conversation much more like a tennis match where you're trying to keep it going, but also you're not just necessarily hitting it right back to them. Like you're kind of hitting it at a slant. You're trying to catch them off guard. And then that makes it all the more delightful when and surprising when that person can kind of dive and catch the thing that you said that's kind of off the wall and hit it back to you. So that's like a really exciting thing just in real life when you meet someone who gets your sense of humor so well that they make you your funniest self because... You're just setting each other up over and over again. But when you're writing dialogue, I think like you have to stop thinking of it as just like passing information back and forth and think of it more as either somebody says something and and they take, you know, you reply with taking that to an even more extreme place or you kind of reverse it in some way. And that feels like really nebulous, (laughs) but it's as close as I've gotten to explaining my mentality behind all of it. 
Do you have days where you find that those are the days because of your mood, the witty banter just kind of flows and that's what you're going to focus on? And there's other days where you're like, oh, I ain't going to be able to do this today for whatever reason. Yeah. And I'll still try to do it. You know, like I, when I'm drafting, I write every single day and I have a word limit that I, or word goal that I have to hit. And so I'll write like very boring scenes if I'm stuck and just move forward because I feel like just bumping, like nudging it forward is a really... (laughs) It's like a really underappreciated part of the writing process is just nudging it forward, no matter how bad it is. But then, you know, like with book lovers, I I think we were in the middle of a pandemic when I wrote it. I wasn't really seeing anyone. I did not feel funny at all. And I think earlier drafts maybe were funnier than I realized. But also there were there were a lot of really dry moments because I just didn't have it in me. And then when I was editing later, it's so much easier when you have like the bones of a story and you're looking at a conversation and all you have to do is tweak the dialogue. Like, so I don't know. I mean, again, I'm a huge, I'm a huge proponent of like nudging it forward and then fixing it later. For me, that's what works best. Everybody's different, but I will write no matter how dry I am feeling and how unwitty I'm feeling. And then just trust that future Emily will be in a better place and we'll be able to like insert some some jokes and some interest into the conversation. Yeah, excellent advice. And for our listeners, you know, when it comes to editing, sometimes it really helps to edit in layers. So instead of at the end trying to edit everything, go in this edit, I'm focusing on character X's dialogue. And in this edit, I'm focusing on character Y's dialogue. And I'm making sure that they sound different enough, etc, etc, as opposed to just trying to fix everything. So our last question before I have to let you go is I was squirming so much when I was reading the antics of Dusty. Now for our listeners, that's this writer that Nora deals with she's a very hard profile writer and she has a lot of insecurities and she needs to be (laughs) talked off a ledge a lot and I felt you were having so much fun with Dusty were you lampooning writers and yourself a bit in the process? Oh yes 100% you know like I was writing this book about this tough agent and knowing like my agent's gonna read this and I hope she knows it's not her but also I have nothing but respect and love for my agent and my editor and also I think there was, it was sort of like this missive I was sending her that was like, just so you know, I know I'm neurotic. I know I'm like needy, whatever. Because I feel like self, people will forgive a lot if you're just like self-aware about it. If you're like, I know I need to work on this and I'm working on it. But yeah, it was really fun to write Dusty, like just being a disaster and Nora just having to kind of like make it work and be there for her. And I think that's the other thing about writing like a, this like hard ass character than having like, it's like, that is true. That's who she is with the publishing, publishing houses. Like she does her job well, and she's a businesswoman, but I don't know if people outside of the industry really know how much like emotional support agents, like that's a big part of their job is just like convincing you that everyone doesn't hate you. And you always feel like you're probably their neediest, worst client. And I just think as long as you're thinking that, then hopefully you're protected from becoming that person because you have, you're like holding yourself back a little bit. But it was really fun to write Dusty needing a lot. And also, you know, there's a thing in the book about how Dusty has written this setting that she clearly never <laughs> visited and, and got very wrong. And I, and I really do like a lot of research when I write about a place. But I thought that was like a funny thing to include because no matter like how much research you do, there still are going to be people from that place who are like, "Mm, no, (laughs) 
no, that's not right. Which is why I honestly tend to write fictional towns when I can. It's like I take what I do know about a general location and I'm like, I can make this whatever I want. Yeah, it's a, it really made me appreciate my agent. And like I said, there were some things then I was, I was recognizing and I was going, yeah. man, I feel sorry for agents because we are a very needy we're lot. We're a mess. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're a hot mess. Well, Emily, thank you so much for, for taking the time out to chat with us. For our listeners, rush and get the book. We will link to it on our bookshop.org affiliate page and and read it for the banter, read it for the lovely writing and just for the, the awesome character. Thank you so much, Bianca. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.